Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the defund the police protesters left a coffin in front of Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger's house last night. He joins us on the program to discuss what police are doing about that. A new Ipsos poll finds 9 out of 10 Canadians are changing or cancelling their holiday plans because of the pandemic. And Canada's federal government released its fiscal update yesterday. We'll recap what happened and analyze the path going forward for the federal government and the opposition parties. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A uh, rather troubling story. Yesterday we told you, of course, about the uh, authorities clearing out the uh, tents in front of Hamilton City Hall. These were people that were protesting uh, about uh, the homelessness issue, we're told, and uh, about defunding of police. And we had one of the organizers on the program uh, at one time late last week to explain exactly what was going on. And uh, we also had the uh, the director of... uh, by law enforcement, Ken Leander's on, on Friday as well, suggesting that they had until midnight Sunday to, to move the tents. Uh, they can stay in protest, he said, but it, they have to move the tents. And if not, then the, something had to happen. Well, it happened yesterday. Uh, the tents were removed, and uh, that's not going to be the end of this by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, late last evening, uh, a coffin was placed in front of the house of uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger, uh, police were called, and uh, quite a few upset people. And I've been following any of this on social media over the last little while. You know that people are uh, getting very, very passionate about this on both sides of this issue. I want to bring the mayor onto the program to explain exactly what's going on and what the next steps will be. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us here on the Bill Keller Show. Mr. Mayor, thank you for the time. Yes, good morning, Bill. What did you see yesterday? How did you come across this thing? Uh, you know, I, I wasn't aware that uh, it was happening. Uh, a neighbor sent me a text and said, uh, do you know that uh, there's a coffin in front of your house and there's, there's a collection of people out there? And uh, by the time I got out there, the people were gone. And, um, and yeah, there was a coffin out there. With I, I didn't look too deeply into it because I didn't want to get too close to it, not, not being sure what was in it or what their intention was. But uh, a lidless coffin, uh, actually a pretty nice coffin. Not one that I can use because I plan on uh, getting cremated. So uh, there's a coffin available for somebody if they uh, they want a lidless coffin. Uh, it's up for grabs. Uh, called the police and uh, they responded uh, quickly and uh, obviously cordoned the area off and looked for any anyone that uh, might have been in the area and then uh, asked for some uh, some video surveillance uh, camera pictures. And I know that uh, one of my neighbors across the street has the video surveillance in his home and uh, has sent them along to the police uh, this morning. So there will be some investigation, and uh, and we'll see where that goes. Was there a message in, uh, in this? Anything directed toward you? No, I mean, obviously it, uh, it, it, it's right on social media, and I believe the message in social media was, uh, you know, people are dying out there, and, and, uh, and you're not doing anything, which is, uh, you know, untrue. And, uh, you know, I, obviously I, I, I kind of expected that... Uh, Something might happen after the tents were removed downtown. These are the same folks that are some of the same folks that are, were on my lawn uh, during the uh, the mayor hates uh, queers uh, kind of protest that they uh, delivered at my home uh, a little bit more aggressively then than they did this time around. Uh, and uh, the same people that uh, you know were participants in the uh, the mayhem in Gage Park, and the, some of the same people that tried to cut off uh, the rail line access, uh, if you recall. You know, about a year ago, they uh, they tried to stop the rail lines from operating. Uh, you know, these are the same people, and uh, you know, added added to with others that uh, I, I guess assume that this is a a smart way to uh, highlight a message. And uh, you know, what they've uh, ended up doing was they've uh, actually harmed their cause. Uh, you know, what uh, 
what's definitely dead is uh, any notion that there's going to be any defunding of police. Uh, that never was on, but there is a, an opportunity to have a conversation around, you know, the uh, the wellness and safety uh, issues that uh, the broader community is having a discussion on right now, and possibly some changes on how you realign resources to get better outcome for a citizen. Uh, and you know, the police have been uh, actually quite amazing in terms of their leading edge uh, uh, approach to mental illness and people in crisis. Uh, they they've created a process with paramedics and social service workers uh, each and every time out that uh, a model that has been employed uh, right across the country and in North America in fact as one of the leading edge processes in terms of how you deal with people in crisis whether it's drug addiction or mental health issues and so they're uh, they're doing work that uh, that others are not doing and if there if there can be a change then there needs to be a conversation about uh, you know what that change looks like and how it's going to improve the, uh, the outcomes for citizens rather than be uh, detrimental to it. So there's work to be done, but this is not the way that uh, we're going to achieve uh, any kind of change. And uh, you know what, I'm, uh, it's unfortunate that these folks are delusional in their, their thinking in terms of uh, you know, just taking money from one pocket and putting it in another. That isn't going to work. But our focus on housing and homelessness has been uh, higher than ever. Uh, you know, in the history of my time here, uh, you know, never once had we put put aside $50 million for housing. Never once have we had to uh, expand the shelter space as a result of the pandemic. And we have room and capacity for anyone that's living on the street right now to be in shelter space. And uh, if we find that we need more room, we're going to create more room. Well, let me ask you about that, Mr. Mayor. There's, we had one of the organizers on the program on Friday, and, and this is... Uh, I tell you, I know you've heard before, but her assertion was that you refused to meet with them. Did you? No, no, not at all. And actually, last Thursday we offered to uh, to meet with them. They never formally asked. They just kept throwing stuff out on social media. Uh, the, we uh, we offered uh, the city manager and I offered to meet with them in city hall, come and have a chat, chat about listening to their concerns. Uh, they, they decided they weren't interested in that. They, uh, they uh, indicated that they wanted it to, uh, to be a, on, on the forecourt, uh, you know, with live stream and cameras on. And uh, you know what? That's not the kind of confrontation that I was going to be uh, putting myself in the middle of. And so happy for conversation, not interested in confrontation. I did hear from one counselor who was, uh, you know, brave enough to go there and have a conversation with uh, some of these folks. And the, the moment uh, they indicated that uh, they weren't supportive of defunding the police, uh, the organizers asked them to leave. You're wasting our time because you're not uh, you're not you're not singing our song, and so their 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 interest in uh, having dialogue, uh, you know, is obviously very limited. There's lots of opportunity for them to uh, to have dialogue in the process. Uh, many of them delegated, uh, you know, a, a while ago and talked about defunding the police. Ironically, the number's gone from 20 percent to 50 percent. I guess the next number is 100 percent, which means we have no policing at all. Well, there are uh, some people that, that are advocating for that already, as you know. Well, and, and, and you know, that's a crazy notion. I mean, I'm, I, I can't even, you know, give it a rational answer in terms of uh, that. That's, that's just uh, the, the development of anarchy. And, and for the anarchists out there, that's exactly what they want. And, uh, and some of those anarchists are participants uh, in these protests, and their whole mission is to, uh, to upset the, uh, the, the, the government in any way they can. To, uh, to get to a point where no one's in control and no one has any authority around 
uh, whether you're governed and how you're policed. And, uh, I, you know, I think that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Let me ask you something uh, about that. For the defunding of police, of course, is one of the main themes, and we've heard that. We heard that from some of the organizers, and I know that uh, some of the counselors have been talking about this in the last little while. Uh, they're also asking about the, the housing situation, and, and uh, depending on who you talk to, of course, you know, it, which is more important to the, the defunding of the housing. I'm, I'm going to assume it's going to be the housing. But one of the mm-hmm. demands that I sh- I'm sure you saw on social media, because I certainly did, uh, was they're demanding free housing uh, to be constructed to be given them immediately uh is there any discussion about that among you and your council colleagues about offering free housing to to people that need it uh not free housing uh but but more housing well that's the word they used well i mean they they can use whatever language they want uh it's it's uh it's just not a possibility everything has a cost to it so there's no there's no free in this world uh there uh you know everything has a has a a monetary impact, and uh, and someone has to pick up the tab. Now, in many respects, we we are subsidizing, you know, affordable housing. We are subsidizing shelters. We are subsidizing, uh, you know, rent supports uh, in our community, and you know, to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. I think Mike Zagarek the other day said uh, just on the housing side in 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 recent years, some thirty or forty million dollars is being expended to provide more affordable housing. We set aside a fifty million dollar pool for, for uh, you know, additional affording housing projects that uh, could be implemented. And that money is in play already, and we're getting, you know, funds from the federal and provincial governments to do even more. So lots of projects are in the queue or in the process, and many opportunities for people to be housed is, is already available and, uh, and, and need to be accessed. Can we, can we uh, you know, for the high-acuity individuals, which was part of the encampment issue, uh, some of those folks can't be housed anywhere because they are disruptive, they're uh, unmanageable, they're unruly, and uh, they're upsetting to the residents that are already there. And so they're asked to leave. And uh, their options get very, very limited because they're, uh, they need a heck of a lot of uh, ongoing help and support. Uh, there are places where we're providing those kinds of supports, but they're, uh, they're limited, and, uh, and we're working on hopefully providing more. But it's a it's a function of addiction. It's a function of mental health issues, uh, all of which uh, seem to be on the rise, and, but not to the degree that we have you know thousands and thousands of people uh, homeless. And uh, quite frankly, I can't think of an occasion where a homeless person died as a result of that homelessness. Although it is an ongoing issue, we never would want that to happen. Well, there are people dying on the streets from overdoses and a number of other things, and we know that yep. to be true. I, I don't have the statistics available, but we certainly hear that from social service agencies yep. and others that, uh, Actually, uh, for a variety two, of two reasons. People, two people that were in the in the uh, the encampment at City Hall uh, were revived as a result of naloxone. So they uh, they had overdoses uh, and they were having addiction issues. So naloxone and, and our distribution of naloxone has saved a lot of lives. What message does this uh, this coffin in front of your house send to you? There was no message there, but the, what what did you take from that? Were you are you threatened by this? Are you angry by this? No, you know what? I, I mean, I, I, as I said earlier, I, I was kind of expecting something. I wasn't sure what it was going to be. Uh, obviously, this is the uh, this is the answer to that. Look, I, I'm 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 taking this, uh, you know, not too seriously in in the sense that uh, this doesn't change the uh, the goal for me. Uh, you know the, uh, the the notion of defunding the police is uh, is is not a a supported uh, issue in the broader community. We just finished uh, you know a survey, city survey, citywide survey, and one of the the highest rated service uh, 
part bar none in, in all the services that we provide and fund uh, was policing at some 82 percent community-wide this is not some limited poll this is a city-wide poll statistically accurate uh and you know what we're going to do a, a town hall uh, you know in the coming uh weaker months possibly in uh, now in january to talk to the broader community about policing in our community of course we, we we're concerned about you know events that occur that are uh you know, uncomfortable and, uh, and and potentially unnecessary. We've uh, dealt with the cart dealt with the carding issue a number of years ago, and certainly that's something that uh, needs to stop. And there, there's no room for harassment in terms of policing, but there's room for policing, and there's need for policing in our community. And you know, you don't have to look too far to to understand the level of crime and uh, and issues that uh, plague our, our communities day in and day out that need police attention whether it's drugs or addiction or uh, pedophilia or child pornography or, you know, uh, you, you name it. I mean, there's so many things that, that, that the police are delving into to try and protect our citizens uh, from themselves and, uh, and from others. And so yep. uh, that the, continues, the, including fraud, quite frankly. And right now, one of we the five tar- targets is tech, technological fraud that uh, is taking advantage of our seniors that the police are heavily engaged to try and prevent. I, listen, I, I, I think we can agree on that. I'm, I'm sure there's some people inside City Hall that don't agree with that, but uh, policing is, is, is absolutely necessary in this community. I mean, that's, it's what gives us order. We know that. That's serving and protecting. We get that. But uh, the example that many of them point to, Mr. Mayor, is uh, the city of Seattle that went through, of course, a, a summer of hell with uh, protests and, and a number of other things that were going on. Uh, they actually were proactive about this, and they sat down with the chief of police, the mayor, some council members, actually a former chief of police, and did a reassessment of how policing was actually being funded in the services. And they didn't defund it. What they did is they reduced the budget because they transferred some of those services over to other agencies, uh, social service agencies and the like, health care, whatever the case might be. Is that discussion taking place in Hamilton is there an evaluation as to how the police operate and what's being done because what some people are saying and I want to get your comment on this is that uh, city council just rubber stamps whatever budget the police put in front of them and there's no discussion about that no I know that's not the case I know there is a lot of discussion about it but is this greater discussion going on as it is in other communities about exactly what police are doing and and, and you know maybe there are some things that could be transferred to other agencies yeah, so so absolutely that discussion is going on, and that we've said this uh, you know a gazillion times now. The, uh, there is a requirement for the city uh, collectively through all of the major organizations that the police is a part of, not leading, but a part of, uh, in terms of community safety and wellness. That is a that is a, uh, a, a kind of an all encompassing plan about how we have better outcomes for all of our citizens, citizens whether it's through policing, through hospital care, through school boards all the major organizations that are involved with everyday interactions with citizens in our community. That discussion is being led by the city of Hamilton. The participants are the school, and there's a long list, I think there are about 20 major institutions, the Hamilton Health Sciences, the two different school boards, uh, the Hamilton Police is a partner. So, uh, some okay, of the, uh, some of the, uh, our, 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 our time's a little tight here, Mr. Mayor. So we, the the, yep. the fact that that's happening is good. Where's the transparency, though? Where's the opportunity for people to have input into this? We well, got I got about a minute left for your other answer. And that'll be a next step in the, in this process. So they this this uh, the group of organizations going to come to uh, some recommendations, and then it'll go out for public uh, public engagement, and uh, and the public at large can have uh, have an opportunity to. Uh, 
to uh, to weed into those, weigh into those issues as well. And that community and safety plan needs to be provided to the province, which is a requirement of theirs, to have it done. <clears throat> that is the avenue to have that conversation around whether or not there is a different model to to deliver mental health crisis issues, or if there's a different model to provide care for people in addictions. Uh, many of that, many of those models are already there. So the question is, are they effective? And uh, does any of that need to change? And the police have said, and I agree, that we're open to those conversations, and uh, that should continue. And we should should come to some conclusion at some point as to whether or not there needs to be substantial change in the way services are being delivered in our community. All right, we'll uh, have to leave it there. We're just about out of time to be continued, I'm sure. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, a lot of Canadians, I guess, are going to be singing I'll Be Home for Christmas this year. Global's Jeff Smith has the details on that. The Ipsos poll for Global News finds 9 out of 10 Canadians are changing or cancelling their holiday plans. 88%, in fact, up 5 percentage points from a month ago. Just over half will either reduce contacts or take social distancing into account, and a third are just cancelling their plans for Christmas. Similar numbers for New Year's. 90% will at least change their plans. A little over half won't go ahead with their plans to ring in the year. The level of restrictions may be impacting these numbers. For example, Atlantic Canadians are most likely to say they're going ahead with their scheduled plans. But now that the travel bubble is bursting, that could change. Quebec is seeing a slight decrease in the number of people saying they'll cancel plans. The government there says small gatherings could be allowed if people quarantine before and after. Just over 1,000 people were surveyed between November 20th and the 23rd. Jeff Smith, Global News. I'm going to bring Daryl Berker into the conversation. Daryl, of course, is the CEO of Ipsos that did the polling for Global News. Uh, Daryl, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today. Well, thanks for having me on, Bill. What's the, what's the overview here? Are we behaving ourselves now? Are we listening to the medical experts? Yeah, we really are. I mean, that, that's the uh, the ironic part of this. You would think when you're hearing, a, uh, particularly viewing a lot of television news these days or seeing things online, uh, social media, that people are, you know, breaking the rules with wild abandon. But the truth is the vast majority of Canadians are following public health advice quite closely. Notwithstanding that, the numbers, I guess, are, are continuing to rise, and that's somewhat problematic. And uh, I, I would wonder, and I was concerned, you know, that a lot of people may just throw up their hands and say, look, we tried to play by the rules, and it's just not working. But uh, they seem to be sticking to it. Your poll, numbers here are pretty strong. Yeah, in fact, another polling that we've done, only a third of Canadians actually say that we're getting this behind us. So that's the vast majority of us saying, no, we're still we're still deep into this. And and. Uh, so deep into it that, you know, the, the most uh, important gathering time of the year for many Canadians, which is Christmas, uh, the Christmas holiday season is one that is going to be very, very different this year. That's interesting because you're right. We saw that south of the border with the Thanksgiving weekend just this past weekend, uh, and the airports were jammed. I mean, you know, I, I was just surprised and shocked. As not not only were they jammed, but an awful lot of people in those airports that weren't wearing masks. They didn't seem to be paying any attention to it. I had occasion to uh, to drop somebody off at uh, at Pearson Airport the other day. Uh, it was a ghost town. I mean, there was hardly any traffic, hardly any people in there, and I, and I guess that's the way it's going to be at least through until the holiday time. Yeah, even though, uh, you know, 88% say that they're going to be doing things differently, that still leaves 12% of a population of 38 million, which is still a lot of people who aren't prepared to follow the public health advice and are just going to keep doing things the way that they would normally do them. 
which is somewhat troubling in and of itself, of course, because, uh, you know, you start talking about super spreaders and, and, and keeping this virus out and there and, and, and spreading is, is one of the concerning parts. And that's all it takes is that tiny segment, doesn't it? Right. And what we're finding in the surveying, it's, it's mostly younger people. It's not exclusively younger people, but it's mostly younger people who are saying uh, that they're going to just keep doing things the way they've always done them. So they seem oblivious to this and uh, maybe seem oblivious to the virus itself, which is uh, somewhat of a troubling statistic. You, you know, you expanded this. I, I love the survey, obviously, talking about whether or not we're going to stay home. And I, I, I concur. I think most of the people I've talked to and family that we know are, have changed plans dramatically as opposed to the way they would used to, you know, go from house to house and traveling around, even within their own communities. They seem to be saying, no, we're just going to stay home there. But you also talked about shopping, and there's some interesting uh, interesting twists to, to the way we're shopping now as a result. I mean, this is, as you mentioned, it's not just the biggest time for travel, it's also the biggest time for shopping. Right, and, and in fact, people are moving, uh, keeping volume similar, but moving most of those volume, that volume online now. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that we've been hearing a lot about is supporting local businesses. And we see that there's a bit of an impulse to do that, but not as strong as we would hope. Uh, and, and probably uh, driven by a couple of things. One of them is the need to follow public health advice uh, and being concerned about actually going out and shopping in, uh, in a local store. But the other question is how many of them are actually open to shop at? Yeah, absolutely. You know, restricted. Uh, I mean, I've seen lineups at some of these stores. I mean, you're only allowed two or three people in the store in some of these smaller places. And, you know, do you really want to stand outside in this weather for half an hour, 45 minutes waiting to get in? I can understand that. So we're doing what a lot of other folks have been doing for the longest time. I guess we're we're online shopping. Is uh, Are those numbers going up, Daryl? Yeah, they definitely are. And, and what we're seeing in a lot of the online shopping, it's not the younger generations that are uh, adapting to it. It's actually the older generations oh, yeah. that are adapting to it. So we're, we're seeing well, young people have, have always done it, but uh, sure. older older populations, grandma and grandpa and, and mom and dad are, are giving it a try this time. And, uh, and uh, the question will be whether or not they continue to do that once we're able to shop back in the way that, uh, that we used to. But definitely for this Christmas season, it's online. I, I know that traditionally they used to say about three percent of the uh, the retail sh- uh, experiences were online. I got to figure that number is going to go up significantly this year. Yeah, it looks like it is going to go up and uh, and has been going up through the uh, the course of the pandemic. But the the real question is, you know, once we're out of this, will will this become a new habit, or was this just only an emergency type of activity like wearing a mask? And you know, I'm not going to wear a mask after I don't have to anymore. Am I going to continue to online shop after I don't have to anymore? Well, it is kind of the new normal, and obviously, I mean, I've been working out of the house since March now, mid-March, I suppose, and see a lot of activity going up and down the street here almost every day, and a lot of courier services, which tells me that those are people that are actually shopping online for could be any number of different things, I suppose. So it seems to be the the, the way that people are looking right now. Uh, and, and if it's attractive and if it's convenient for them and if it's not going to cost them too much money, uh, I guess... The, the next big step here for small retailers is to try to convince people to come back. Yeah, and that's that's exactly it. And also the small retailers starting to look at what they do as being less of just a community thing, but more, if particularly if they've got a unique offer that they could think could have wider appeal, um, trying to get themselves into the global marketplace. Because uh, uh, that, that's one of the things that's interesting about uh, about the current shopping environment is that uh, the uh, the ability to experiment across a wide variety of different types of retail retailers is definitely there on uh, online and if you're prepared to trust that retailer and you know they're prepared to take your credit card or your or your PayPal pal number it's 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 just as easy 
Do you know, one of the reassuring things I always find when I read your polls uh, is it, it reassures and I think reestablishes my faith in, in, in Canadians and in humanity. I mean, we're, you know, as you say, you'll see some people that are protesting on a newscast and you figure, my God, I guess, you know, this is, this is just going too far. Uh, but by and large, we're, we're pretty resilient here, aren't we? We said, yeah, we can online shop. Okay, we can pivot. We can do this. All right, I really want to go and see the, you know, the, the family at Christmas, but no, I, I can suck it up for one year and not do that. Uh, the majority of people here seem pretty much in tune with, with the way things are supposed to be, and they don't get that ruffled about, about major things. I mean, you even saw the story the other day about, you know, well, we're not going to get the vaccine until later. So what? As long as we get it, that's okay. It's, there's a, a, a different attitude of Canadians here. That they just seem to be, okay, you know, we can take this. We, we, we can handle this. Yeah, I think on the vaccine one, uh, it, it will become interesting because the question moves from uh, whether or not it's okay to get vaccines later to why are we getting vaccines yeah. later. Now there's so, the, you know, yeah, there's a debate. <laughs> right, and, and, and uh, you know, if, if all of a sudden we start seeing people in Mexico getting vaccines or we see people in, uh, I don't know, pick, pick, pick your country, uh, France getting uh, vaccines earlier uh, and uh, they're able to turn the corner faster, then the attention is going to turn back to the federal government uh, and to, to ask, why are we trailing? You know, what decisions were made that created created this situation? And, and, and the reason that that's going to happen is because it's a natural impulse among the population. But then the second part, Bill, is that the, the opposition parties are, are absolutely going to ask those, that, that question because so far, whatever explanations the government has provided have not really, um, I would say, uh, uh, tamped down that problem. Well, we saw that even yesterday, didn't we, with Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader. Uh, we thought was going to be talking about the economic statement, and he did for a few seconds, but he, uh, he you know, morphed right into the to the vaccine story once again, too. So it's not something that's going to go away anytime soon, is it? No, and, and, and I'm sure that people are out there, you know, doing other polling, saying, is it acceptable for, uh, for us to wait a bit? And, you know, as you can see from the public health uh, information that we're talking about relative to shopping and canceling holidays and that kind of thing, yeah, people will say, yeah, I'm, I'm prepared to do that. But then the question comes down to why. Exactly. Why am I being asked to do this? And is it because we're fighting a, a pandemic and we're all in this together or because a government made a certain type of decision that it's not unprepared to explain? And uh, the opposition parties are going to continue to answer that, ask that question, and you're not going to get an answer, maybe. Uh, then I think the whole dynamic changes. So it's it's a very politically precarious point for this government, um, that the federal government in particular, because it's specifically in their hands at this moment. Now, if vaccines come on relatively quick, if we're talking like a two-week delay, it's not going to matter. But if it's really, as the prime minister indicated, you know, the majority of Canadians being uh, vaccinated by September, that's going to be a little difficult to swallow. Absolutely. Daryl, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Stay well. Daryl Burker, CEO for Ipsos Polling, uh, working uh, with Global News, of course, to get that information to us. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A uh, rather ambitious plan unveiled by the uh, Trudeau government yesterday. The federal liberals are proposing $25 billion in new spending to help Canadian businesses and workers make it through this pet coming winter and vowing tens of billions more to help with the country's recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. Finance Minister Christy Freeland presented the government's fall economic update yesterday in the House of Commons. We will do whatever it takes to help Canadians stay healthy, safe, and solvent. We will invest in every necessary public health measure. 
and we will support Canadian families and Canadian businesses in a deliberate, prudent, and effective way. A lot of, uh, of, of promises, which, which you expect, of course, from governments in situations like this. Uh, but one of the major concerns uh, from the opposition parties, all of the opposition parties, by the way, uh, is uh, exactly where this money is going to be applied and when it's going to be applied. Uh, the numbers are pretty big here. To counter the pandemic, uh, the Finance Minister Freeland uh, now predicts the federal government is going to have to spend $267.3 billion in current fiscal year. That's for this year. Uh, just to support individuals and businesses. And some of that money is going to go to the provinces. But she's also expecting another $45.9 billion in aid could be required in the next fiscal year. Uh, before, obviously, we're talking about stimulus for the economy here. Uh, and, and they'll justify this simply by saying, well, you know, the, the debt-to-GDP ratio is going to peak at about 52.6%, which they feel is tolerable. Now, I know that that's way up in the stratosphere to a whole lot of people but the reality here is they say we can handle it well the opposition parties aren't so sure about that uh, with the vast sums of money that are being bandied about here uh, the concern here is you know what about the future and and you know the public opinion polls that have been done really since march since uh, the government started to react with some of these support programs have been generally supportive of the way the government has offered uh, some assistance to to individuals and to businesses, uh, there's always a concern about you know is it enough? And and there were some blips along the way, as we know, and some additions and subtractions from some of those programs uh, to make them more efficient. When you're rolling things out in a hurry, such as they had to do, I guess you have to expect that. But what about down the road? You know, we, we're looking at 2021 right now, and there are a number of different factors here. I mean, we know that the virus and the pandemic is not going to go away anytime soon. It's still going to be with us. Uh, we know that vaccinations are on the way, but, but that's not a magic bullet. It's just going to fix everything overnight. Uh, it's going to take a while for the vaccination program to roll out. And in the meantime, we're still stuck in this economic quagmire that we're dealing with right now so what is going to happen and what's the the opposition party's response to this well to that end we're uh, pleased to welcome to the program pierre polyev who is the finance critic for the conservative party uh, mr polyev thank you so much for the time good to have you with us today good to be with you i mean your reaction to what you heard yesterday what we got is more credit card bills no paychecks but credit card bills and that's the liberal plan for our economy Put another $400 billion on the national credit card uh, and uh, hope that nobody ever asks us to pay the interest. What we really needed was uh, a plan for paychecks. Paychecks come from safely delivering vaccines and rapid testing so people can get into their jobs without suffering from COVID uh, and earning wages from employers uh, uh, in the private sector. That is the only way we're going to dig ourselves out of this massive financial mess uh, and give Canadians the chance to achieve their dreams. One of the concerns that I had as I was listening to the, yesterday, of course, to the, her to her presentation, Minister Freeland's presentation, uh, a, a lot of platitudes about a, a, a daycare program. We heard about that. We heard about uh, fighting systemic racism. I mean, look, this is this is all stuff that you usually hear in throne speeches and things of this nature. But not a whole lot of detail. No, just a lot of uh, credit card bills. Look, look, the all of these. Uh, promises for brand new programs to reimagine our country uh, would have to be paid for on the national credit card. We now have a trillion dollar national debt. Uh, and that, it's official. Uh, it is rising to $1.1 trillion this year. Our debt to GDP ratio could reach roughly 56% next year, which is 
just 10 percentage points below where it was when we had a all-out financial crisis in the 1990s that led Liberals to cut health care. Uh, and uh, yet they have no uh, plan whatsoever to rein in this massive and growing problem. Uh, what they should be doing is trying to find a way to get people safely back to real practical jobs that deliver paychecks, that put food on the table, and deliver revenues for government programs. And how would how would you suggest that that, that happen? Because we don't seem to be going down this this road with uh, with much of a, a a direction as to where we're going to end up in this. I mean, we've talked about the fact that they want to spend even more money next year. We know that. We know the pandemic isn't going to go away anytime soon. But even with vaccinations and even with testing, which I, I agree with you are essential, uh, we're not going to flick a switch and be back to a vibrant economy. This is going to take a lot of hard work. Yes, well, the, the, that's why we should have rapid testing and vaccines as quickly as possible. The rapid testing allows us to quickly isolate people who are infected while uh, allowing others to go about their lives uh, as normal. And the vaccine can help us put the entire COVID nightmare behind us. Those are, are the two ways that we get people back into jobs. And then in, uh, in the, uh, the aftermath, we also need to... Uh, Get, unleash the forces of our economy that have been suppressed by idiotic government policies. There are $20 billion worth of resource projects that are that could employ hundreds of thousands of workers across this country that are awaiting federal approval uh, but, but are facing delays. There are It takes 168 days longer to get a factory or warehouse approved for construction in Canada than it does in the United States. We're the th- ranked 34th out of 35 OECD countries when it comes to the delays in delivering a permit to build something in this country. How can you get people working if investors can't build factories, warehouses, and mines in which for them to do it? We can't even trade with ourselves in this country. Uh, We import cheap goods from China but can't buy from our neighboring Canadians and other provinces. We should be knocking down these barriers and obstacles the government has put in our way so that Canadians can get back to work and bring our economy roaring back to life. And that economic development aspect of this is going to be key, but uh, so is the healthcare end of it as well. And, and one of the disconnects right now, Mr. Polyev, seems to be the relationship uh, between the federal government and the premiers. I know that back in the springtime when we started going into this pandemic and this crisis, there seemed to be uh, some semblance of, of cooperation between the premiers and the, and the government. Uh, that seems to have eroded over the last four or five months. It's going to be somewhat problematic to try to find consensus on a lot of the things that you've just talked about. Well, I agree. Every time something goes wrong, Trudeau tries to throw uh, his provincial counterparts under the bus and blame them for his failures. But, you know, they were his failures. He failed to deliver rapid testing on time, uh, rapid testing that is available in other countries and has been for months now. Uh, He has uh, botched the procurement of vaccines, which means the vast majority of Canadians won't get vaccinated for another year. Uh, while the rest of the world is getting vaccinated uh, as early as uh, January and February. Uh, and he's trying to blame everyone but himself uh, for those problems. And that, of course, makes it harder for him to work with other levels of government. How do you 
balance uh, what is is I guess the major problem here assistance and you know because I think there's agreement a general agreement about getting assistance out there to individuals and to businesses especially small businesses that have been crippled by what's gone on in the last nine months but at the same time I, keeping an eye to, to that growing number that you just talked about at some time uh, those credit card bills come due and we're going to have to do something about that uh, I, I don't hear a whole lot about what sort of a plan they've, they've envisioned to try to uh, tackle that, 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 which seems to be this, this gargantuan debt right now that, as you say, is down the road, uh, and it's not going to go away. Well, it's not just government debt. The consumers now have $2 trillion worth of debt, a record. That's bigger, almost the same size as our entire economy. Corporations have record debt, and then, of course, governments are, are piling on record deficits in this COVID uh, environment. So we now have a combined debt, public and private, of 400% of our economy. $4 of debt for every $1 of economic output. Uh, that is a record. It puts It's the second highest debt level in all of the G7. The only thing that is saving us, of course, is low interest rates. But interest rates can rise at any time. We don't have control over that. They, in, the, in the 70s, in, two year, in a two-year period, they rose from 8% to 22% in two years. And I'm not saying we're going that high, but we don't know how high interest rates will go. And if we don't have a handle on our debt before they rise, we could be in a serious crisis. When we look at some of the things that, uh, that Minister Freeland talked about yesterday, and again, pretty short on details, we're going to try to get some meat on the bones about some of these things, I guess, in the days and weeks ahead. And I know certainly in question period, that's uh, going to be one of the topics. But when they start talking about things like uh, a pharma care program, uh, in, uh, increasing diligence for long-term care facilities, uh, we mentioned earlier about the child care program, uh, they all come with a price tag, and, and these are not new ideas. These are ideas that this government and previous governments have talked about for years and years and years. Uh, the question now, I guess, Mr. Polyev, is affordability. I mean, I, I, I understand that assistance programs have to be in place, certainly for individuals and for businesses, uh, but are these part of the package? Are these things that, that a government, uh, that if you were the finance minister, would be entertaining as, as possible ways and solutions to try to get us out of this morass? No, not at all. They're unrelated to this morass. Um, in fact, they'll make the situation worse. Um, let's take uh, child care, for example. Let's be clear. Mm-hmm. The government is not proposing to make child care more affordable. They're just proposing that people, that parents would pay for their child care on their tax bill. So they say they're, they're trying to tell us that we'd be better off if parents were forced to pay their child care dollars in taxes to the federal government, which then gives the money to the provincial government, which then gives the money to the municipal government, which then gives it to a child care agency, which then provides the parent with a a local daycare, instead of just letting the parent choose their local daycare or child care option and how to spend their money themselves. Uh, You know, there is no way that's going to be more affordable. It simply puts three levels of government between parents and a child care facility. What we need now is to raise parents' paychecks by unleashing our economy to create good-paying jobs, then they can actually afford child care, whatever child care option they choose. Uh, 
we have heard from all the opposition, Mr. O'Toole, of course, from your party and all the other leaders. Uh, the un- unanimous opinion here seems to be that uh, this is a thumbs down on this economic statement. Now, this is not a confidence motion, I suppose, but uh, does this move us one step closer to a possible election in the next couple of months? Well, I don't think we should be focused on elections. We should be doing the job of getting Canadians safely back to work and protecting them from COVID. Um, uh, so we're not pushing for an election. We're pushing for uh, common sense changes. Um, and I know that Trudeau will try to get an election as quickly as he can before people realize that we're near the back of the pack for uh, COVID vaccines, uh, before they realize how broke we are, and before the Ethics Commissioner reports back on the we scandal. Uh, all of these things will happen probably in the, the spring and, and maybe summer. So Trudeau needs an election before that happens. Get the vote, the votes in the ballot box before people know the truth. Pierre Polyev, as always, sir, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Great to be with you. Take care. Uh, finance critic, of course, for the uh, Federal Conservative Party. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We continue with our analysis of the uh, economic statement that was issued yesterday by Finance Minister Christian Freeland. Uh, joining us now is uh, Philomena Tassi. Uh, Philomena, of course, is the Minister of Labor for the uh, federal government and also the uh, Member of Parliament for Hamilton, Dundas, and Ancaster. Philomena, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Pleasure to be here. Uh, you just missed uh, your friend, uh, Mr. Polyev, of course, who was uh, with us just a few minutes ago uh, with his analysis of it. And if I can paraphrase uh, some of his comments, uh, all the government's doing here is running up the credit card debt and uh, uh, initiating programs that aren't really going to do much in the way of economic recovery. I'd get your response to that. Well, I, I absolutely can't support that, uh, that approach uh, with respect to the fall economic statement. Uh, Bill, what I would say is, you know, we believe in Canadians, and what the fall economic statement is, is a commitment to invest in Canadians. We know that the pandemic is here for a short time, and it's critical that we offer the supports to Canadians that they need so that we can come back stronger and come back better, and that's exactly what the fall economic statement does. Well, are you concerned about that large number, though? I mean, you know, I, I, I'm the first one to say, look at you know, we we need to do what we have to do and spend what we have to spend uh, to keep people's jobs and to keep them healthy during this. We get that. Uh, but that's a big, pretty big number, and it's it's down the road we're going to have to deal with that. It means some pretty tough decisions are going to have to be made then. So I'd say a couple things on that. First, you know, we entered this pandemic, Canada entered it with the strongest fiscal position of the G7 uh, countries, and, and, and we retain that position today. And the, um, the COVID-19 debt is affordable, with the debt serving costs at the lowest they've been in in 100 years. But I think it goes back to my first point, and it's this. We believe in Canadians. We know that businesses, for example, small businesses are the backbone of our country. We need to get them through this time. And our investments are smart investments. When you look at investments like in childcare, so that we are allowing people mostly women, because we know women is, uh, it usually falls on women to look after children, to get back to work with a commitment to a national child care plan. Investments in training so that Canadians can have the skills that they need to take up the jobs as the changing nature of work continues. Um, you know, investing in the Canada Child Benefit and providing more money to families who are lower income uh, with children six years and under, an extra $1,200. So these investments are rooted in a belief in Canadians. We know 
the Canadians have fantastic potential. And really what we need to do is to get them through this period so that we can come back stronger and come back better. And that's exactly what the fall economic statement does in terms of signaling where we are going to continue to make our investments. In a lot of ways, I mentioned this kind of reads like a speech from the throne. Uh, you know, there's there's promises and a game plan, I guess, is, is maybe one way to characterize it. Uh, but when you start t- talking about things like a pharma care program, uh, increasing long-term care, and even the child care program, uh, the price tag is concerning. But the other element to that, too, is uh, the fact that that's going to require partnerships between the the federal government and the provincial governments uh, and trying to get a consensus on premiers as you know sometimes it's like herding cats you just can't seem to get everybody on the same page how do you intend how does the government intend to do something like this and move these programs forward well i think that the uh, level of collaboration has been very strong i mean uh, we know that there's differences of opinions on certain things but let's face it, we really need a Team Canada approach here. We don't need division. We need everyone working together, and we're, con- we're going to continue to do that. When you look at the uh, unprecedented number of meetings with our provincial and territorial partners, from the, pri- from the Prime Minister uh, to the Minister of Intergovernmental uh, Affairs uh, to each minister, the conversations that we're having with our provincial and territorial partners are unprecedented and so it's really about ensuring that that communication continues and that we uh, you know that we work together in order to provide these supports that are necessary so for example you know i want to come back to the child care uh, and the importance of that mm-hmm. look when we can support women in the economy in in jobs and giving them the supports they need to to go out and work we know that the economy it benefits. It's not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. That's what these investments are about. They're making investments in areas where we know that at the end of the day, this is going to put us in a stronger and better position. When I know that I can drop my daughter or son off at a daycare and leave them there feeling that it's affordable, that they're being taken good care of, I can go to work and spend my day at work contributing to the workforce, and then at the end of the day, of course, picking them up. And that's really, really important because we need to make those sorts of investments because they're smart investments. They're going to put us in a very strong economic position, and that's what the fall economic statement does. And, you know, I I would turn to, to businesses, like look in terms of the supports that we've done for businesses. So the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy, which the federal government is paying 75% of the wages, we've increased it now back to 75%. We've extended it to June because we want the relationship between employer and employee to stay strong so that when the pandemic is over, those relationships continue and come back stronger. The rent subsidy, you've seen, you've had me on the show talk about how this has uh, transformed because we've listened to what Canadians have said with respect to the rent subsidy. So now the rent subsidy and the lockdown support is actually going to provide businesses with 90% of their rent costs for those qualifying businesses. And that, too, extended to June 2021. SIBA, the the, uh, business uh, loan that is available to small businesses, um, you know, increasing that by $20,000. These investments are investments that demonstrate We believe in small business. We know you need help right now. We're going to give you that help. 
and you're going to come back stronger at the end of it with the entire whole government approach that we are taking with respect to the investments we are making. Let me just uh, I'll backtrack a little bit to the daycare program again, because that, that's an important element to this, and I know it piqued a lot of people's interest. Uh, not the first time something like this has been discussed and debated. Uh, in past elections, of course, it's been a very contentious issue. Uh, the concern here is, is, is twofold. First of all, uh, availability and, and uh, you know, where the money's going to go and, and exactly what that's going to do. But the other thing that's that's always uh, I think important is creating spaces uh, in daycare. So it's not one thing to say, okay, we're going to fund this and we're going to make it easier for people to actually access it. But if there aren't enough spaces uh, and not enough choice for people in varying levels, uh, we've got a problem here. Is there a game plan to create more daycare spaces? So we have been working on this um, for some time now, because we recognized that this was extremely important. So to date, um, we've created 40,000 more spaces. We know more work needs to be done. We've invested uh, $1 billion this year alone and have committed to $7.5 billion moving forward over a 10-year plan to ensure that these spaces are created. And, and it goes back to, you know, ensuring that we have the full participation of women in the workforce. I can't, you know, I can't stress this enough. And look at the measures that we have implemented outside of FEZ. You know, the passing of Bill C-65 to prevent violence and harassment in the workforce. Moving forward with proactive pay equity legislation. Bill, for the first time, women are going to be paid equally to men for work of equal value. So we're not talking about just the same job. We're talking about the value of work. And our government, notwithstanding that we're in the middle of a pandemic, knows that this is extremely important. So we're moving forward with that. Passing pay transparency legislation to, to you know, minimize that gap. Investing $5 billion in women entrepreneurship strategy. All these things are demonstration of a commitment that with more women in the workforce, we know that we are going to benefit. And the studies and the evidence shows that, um, that, that, you know, women do contribute and that, that the contributions are extremely important. Over the last 40 years, greater participation of the women in the workforce has accounted for about one-third of Canada's economic growth. So, you know, these, this is why, you know, it's interesting that people, uh, the opposition may talk about, you know, this spending. And this is investment. This is investment in Canadians that are going to get us to a place where we are going to be stronger at the end. These investments are smart investments. They're investments that will actually create jobs, help the environment. So, you know, I think the plan is a strong one. It's a good one. It's it's, uh, demonstrating confidence of our government in the abilities of Canadians, and we want to unlock and unleash the potential of every Canadian across this country. But what what happens going forward now? If this is use that characterization, this is the roadmap uh, that that you want to follow for let's say for the next twelve to fourteen months, I guess, because uh, the COVID's still going to be with us in some way, shape, or form for a while. We know that. Uh, but not surprisingly, as you saw yesterday, the reaction from the opposition parties was j- just generally thumbs down. All of the opposition parties had some concerns about this and said they would not support this. Now. As I explained to our listeners, this is not a confidence vote. This is not a budget. Uh, so there's not a non-confidence motion on this particular uh, roadmap that you've described here. But I'm getting a sense that you're not going to get a whole lot of cooperation from anybody uh, in the opposition side of the benches here when it comes to mo- initiating the, the, some of these programs. How do you move this agenda forward then without that kind of support? Well, I think, you know, really it's it's an appeal again to saying, look, folks, let's take the politics out of this. 
Let's work together collaboratively so that we can move forward with a plan that's going to work for Canadians. I have to say that I'm I'm particularly frustrated with the Conservative opposition focus on uh, the vaccine piece and the image and the information that is being sort of, um, you know, spread across the country, putting fear into Canadians with respect to the vaccine. And so I I think I want, if I I could, I'd like to speak to that for a minute. You know, in terms of vaccine procurement, we have secured 429 million doses from seven vaccine candidates. This portfolio is one of the strongest portfolios in the world. And um, this whole focus on a date is frustrating. And and I'll tell you why. Look, this is what we are doing. In terms of vaccine approval, so four of the seven companies that we have contracts with are in the regulatory process. And we have expedited that process by providing more supports to get companies through, but at the same time not compromising safety in any way because we know Canadians want a safe vaccine. So we are working full force on this. Now, when someone, so we have the best, we have one of the best portfolios. We have the uh, Canadian Armed Forces, um, uh, Major General Danny Fortin is, is looking at uh, and has been looking at and will continue to look at, um, you know, getting this vaccine distributed across the country in a safe, uh, efficient way. Um, and, and we've seen that. You've, you've seen the polling on this, Philomena, that uh, was released just this morning, as a matter of fact, that indicated that the majority of Canadians are not really concerned about this. I mean, I know the opposition parties are, are trying to make a big deal of this, and even Mr. Polyev just a few minutes ago, when I was trying to uh, get his explanation as to what was going on, suggested that some people aren't going to get vaccinated until next winter. Well, th- nobody said that except them. I mean, even you know when the CEO of Moderna says, no, Canada is right up there at the top, they're right near the top, you have to take them at their word. If it's a couple of weeks late, I don't think anybody really cares one way or another uh, aside from the people on the opposition benches but there was some concern uh, about you know when this is going to roll out and the impact that it's going to have uh, as I said an inoculation is not going to make the economy better overnight that's going to take some long hard work uh, I, I know they want to switch that and I saw that with Mr. O'Toole yesterday Philomena his comments about the economic statement I think he spent about a minute and a half talking about that and then morphed into the vaccine issue again uh, yeah yeah, but and that's fine if that's if, you know those are their talking points and they're going to stick to them. I think we as a as a country and as a people right now are more concerned about how we're going to survive week to week with this, and because uh, the the vaccine, as we say, is not going to make the pandemic go away. It's it's certainly going to help us and it's going to make us healthier over the long haul. But there's still a lot about that we don't know. But there's a lot about the economy that we do have, have major concerns about. So I'm I'm more concerned about talking about this roadmap and and the way forward on this and and how some of these programs are going to be talking about i mean you talked about a lot of things about uh you know we mentioned the child care we've covered that extensively uh pursuit of reconciliation increasing immigration uh i read the chamber of commerce report and i'm sure you did too about the impact that uh, the pandemic has had on women in the workforce and it's it's dreadful actually when you look at some of those numbers but some of these other groups that we just talked about here too uh including aboriginals have also been negatively impacted by this is there a, a section in this program a section in this roadmap to to reach out to those groups as well so bill i would say so first of all just if i can finish on the vaccines i want to assure canadians that they are we are going to have timely delivery safe delivery of the vaccines, and that will be uh, afforded across this country. And so pro- plans are in place, and we are thinking of every contingency for the safe and effective delivery of that, working, you know, all hands on deck on that. So so just to wrap that up, 
With respect to moving forward, look, we have supported uh, all groups, all vulnerable populations from the very beginning of this pandemic. And, you know, whether that was funds with respect to um, uh, schooling, health and safety, um, uh, community organizations that are supporting these various groups, we have made the commitment that we have and we will continue to support uh, vulnerable populations throughout this. We know that many vulnerable populations have been hardest hit. And so it's really, really important that we continue to focus on um, ensuring that no one is left behind. And when you look at the supports that we gave to, to Canadians individually through, originally it was CERB, uh, Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. Now it's transitioned into recovery benefit and EI we not only supported Canadians that were generally supported in the EI program, we supported all Canadians, those that um, were gig workers, those that uh, normally would not receive the supports. So the extent and the vast uh, um, support that we have offered has been unprecedented because we want to ensure that every Canadian gets through this uh, pandemic and, and the focus, this roadmap is about ensuring that when we come back, we come back even stronger. That's why these investments are important. What I would ask the opposition is what part of the investments are they going to cut? What would they not support? Um, you know, well, I Mr. Paul, you have already be- told us. He already told us things like daycare and a, and a pharmacare program uh, would be off the books as, if they were in government right now. So I think we get a pretty good idea where they're going on that. Uh, the, the rationale, though, is you know, what kind of an impact is it going to have? And is it the, the sort of thing that Canadians want? Well, that's very unfortunate that, uh, you know, <laughs> we are long overdue for a national child care program so that parents, specifically women, can be reengaged in the workforce. We know that the workforce is going to benefit with, re- with, women, uh, with women in full, and, uh, full participation. And, you know, I mean, the statistics show that Canada could add $150 billion to its economy in the next decade by taking steps for greater uh, gender equality in the workforce. So th- this is an investment. This is this. We're at the time we must make take this step. We must provide supports for women so that they can be full participants in the workforce. Who is going to argue that Canadians are not going to benefit by more full participation of women in the workforce? And why should they have struggles and hurdles and obstacles that others don't have? So look at. It's as I've said before and said many times, it's not only the right thing to do. There's not only a moral imperative. It's the smart thing to do. And I would say to you that the the um, the measures that we are implementing in the fall economic statement are all smart measures to get us to strong economic recovery, good investments. I mean, even in things like training and skills, right? Like well, ensuring well, Yeah, that I wanted to get into that. We'll, we'll have to do that at another time. We're just about out of time. I wanted to get into okay. the Pharmacare program as well because, as you know, and, and I've told my listeners a number of times, uh, Pharmacare was supposed to be part of the initial uh, Medicare program in 1964, and they said, yeah, we'll get around to it. Well, it's 2020, and we haven't done it yet, so uh, <laughs> we're long overdue for that. But that's going to be a conversation for another day. A uh, busy day for you today, Philomena. Thank you so much for taking some time for us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Pleasure as always. Bill Tassi, the Minister of Labor, and of course the Member of Parliament for uh, Hamilton, Dundas, and Ancaster. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.